You know, I like, uh, I like the monsoon season. It's a little scary, though, you know, when those microbursts hit your neighborhood. I drove by this uh, just big old billboard that sits on the back of a semi. Um, I drive by it all the time. It was, it's like, wow, man. And it was, I don't know if the billboard was off of it or the wind blew it off because it was gone. But the thing was over, and I was like, yikes, I'm just glad that wasn't my house. But I do have some good news for you. The odds of being struck by lightning on any given day, 1 in 250 million. Now, those aren't Tucson odds, so be careful. <laughs> gotcha! Now, so be safe, but you don't have to worry about lightning. I would advise you to stay away from Washington, D.C., though, because the odds of getting murdered in Washington, D.C. are 1 in 1,681, which seems odd to me. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. You know, I, and I'm actually going to use this, too. So thanks for bringing it over. Very helpful. I forgot it. Odds of dying in a car crash. This is just a great morning, isn't it? One in 5,000. Odds of flying and dying. One in 11 million. And yet there's a lot of people who are afraid to fly, but not afraid to drive. One in 5,000 versus one in 11 million. Flying is much, much, much safer than driving. The reason I share these statistics with you is because I want to get to another statistic. By the way, the odds of dying in a plane crash, one in 11 million. The odds of being struck by lightning, one in 250 million. Do you think, how many of you actually think in this room you're going to die by getting struck by lightning? Not too worried about it? Yeah. The odds aren't, aren't very good. If you're worried about it, I, I will make you a bet. And I'll give you great odds. <laughs> You will not get struck by lightning. The odds of one single person fulfilling eight prophecies in the Bible are one in ten to the 17th power. So if you're not good with math, like me, just know that's one with the number 10 and 17 zeros after it. These are the odds of somebody writing out random messianic prophecies and them actually happening in one person. So if you think the odds of you getting hit by lightning are high, the odds of you getting eight prophecies fulfilled in one person are unbelievable. They're insane. Now, I'm not good with math, and you can correct me later if I get this wrong, but I don't think I will. Here's what we got. 1,000, 1 million, 1 billion, 1 trillion, 1 quadrillion. That number is 100 quadrillion. By the way, I looked it up because I didn't know what came after a trillion. <laughs> I imagine we just watched the deficit for a few more years and we'll all know. But trillion I knew. Now, I've shared this statistic with you before. To, to, to help you understand this, it's like going to Texas and covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Taking one of those coins, putting an X on it, and mixing it in. Putting on a blindfold, getting airdropped somewhere in the state randomly, and you get one chance to pick the right coin. 
those are the same odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies in their lifetime. It's not going to happen. And though I've shared that statistic with you before in the past, what I didn't share with you is how big Texas is. I know you think you know because you've been there. How many of you have driven across it? Yeah, how many of you regretted it? Because <laughs> it's not just a big state. It's a lot of nothing to look at. You get out of New Mexico and it's like, the mountains decided we're going to stop right here. No more mountains. Just dirt for as far as the eye can see. Now, I know you've driven across it, but you probably only went one way across. You didn't go like up and down, corner to corner, side to side. I mean, it's a big honking state. Let me give you some examples of how big this state is. Wow, I'm falling apart up here. Okay. Beaumont, Texas is closer to Tampa, Florida than it is to El Paso. To give you an idea of how big the state is. Brownsville, Texas is closer to Mexico City than to Dallas. Mexico City, not like Nogales. Corpus Christi, Texas is closer to Cuba than it is to Denver. Austin, Texas is closer to New Orleans than it is to El Paso. Downtown Fort Worth to downtown Dallas is longer than the Gaza Strip is long. You get an idea of how big this state is? Dallas to Houston is nearly the same distance as Paris to London. So, when I say you gotta cover the state two feet deep in silver dollars, mark one with an X and randomly find it, it ain't happening. In fact, if you were to sit down and start looking at them one by one, I wonder how many centuries it would take you to find it by random. The odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. I'll give you the source of that statistic a little later, but it came from a scientist. It wasn't just some guy who made it up. Now, during the season of Jesus' Jesus's crucifixion, from the trial through his crucifixion, he fulfilled approximately 30 prophecies. Not eight, 30. Now, I looked at a list. It said like 28, and I knocked a couple off, and I got it down to 26 because I thought some of them were reaching. So in my mind, at least 26 prophecies. But 30 is a nice round number. In his lifetime, he fulfilled about 300 prophecies. Now, if eight is 100 quadrillion odds, what is 300? I don't know if we could fit that many zeros on the screen. I doubt we could. I would like to know that number, but I don't know anybody capable <laughs> of determining it. So why, why all this statistics, Steve? Why all the odds? There's one verse in the Bible that we all read together this week that set my mind spinning. If you're going through your annual Bible reading with us, you read this verse too. And um, let me read it to you, and then I'll tell you why it got my mind spinning. It came from Mark. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're thinking, Steve, yeah, that got my mind thinking on odds too. Why, why, why would you say that, Steve? Well, because what I know about this verse, and some of you may know also, is 
This is not a random thing that Jesus said. He didn't just say that because he felt that. He was actually quoting the first verse of the 22nd Psalm. He intentionally used the words that were in that Psalm. Now, if you go to the Psalm, which we're going to do, the Psalm was written by King David, who lived a thousand years before Jesus. By the way, David was also Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. I don't know how many greats you need to get to a thousand years, but. And David wrote that. And David wrote in the first person, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he goes on to talk about a bunch of things that happened, but they didn't happen to David. So if they didn't happen to David, then who did they happen to? And this got the rabbis talking. Well, maybe this is a messianic prophecy. Maybe this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah someday. Psalm 22.1 says even more than that. Listen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Now, when you first read that verse without knowing anything about messianic prophecy, you think, okay, David wrote this. And so the prophecy is really kind of, it's hidden. You don't really know it's a prophecy on first glance. In fact, you really weren't certain it was a prophecy until Jesus quoted the words. And as soon as he quoted the words, everybody who was around him would have heard them and know what they stood for because they were all conversant in the Bible. They knew the Bible very well, better than a lot of us do today. And as soon as he said those words, their mind would have gone, ah, the 20, 22nd Psalm. Wow, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Wow, I wonder what else is fulfilled in Jesus and would have gotten people reading further. And sure enough, there's a lot more things in there than just that. So what I want to tell you about that psalm is, first of all, Jesus draws our attention to it. It's not like we randomly went to a verse in the Old Testament and said, hey, that sort of looks like something Jesus did. Let's say it's a prophecy because it, it looks good. We didn't make it up is what I'm trying to say. Jesus pointed us to it by quoting it. As I told you, David wrote the psalm a thousand years before, and he wrote it in the first person as if it was happening to him. But it didn't happen to him. The events described in that psalm, many of them, they did not happen to him. So who did they happen to? Nobody in that thousand years. But then they started cha-ching, 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 stacking up, applying to Jesus. Now, when he said he's on the cross, he's being crucified. He's not dead yet. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a perplexing passage. What does it mean that Jesus, who is God and the Son of God, is being forsaken by God? How can God forsake God? That doesn't make any sense. And so a lot of people are trying to understand the relationship to Jesus Christ with his Father and what this whole forsaking thing actually implies. What's it mean? It's rather confusing. And I think some people make more out of it than they should. Of course, I could be wrong, but nah. Some people say that Jesus was separated from his father on the cross because the sins of the world were heaped on him. God is holy. God can't have anything to do with sin. Therefore, for a short period of time, the son was separated from the father. I can't believe that. Because remember, there's the Trinity. You can't break up the Trinity. You might as well just try to, you know, pull apart the universe. You, you just can't do that. Any more than somebody can, like, take your head off of you for just a short time and then put it back. It doesn't work. 
So it has to mean, in my mind, something else. Uh, there's a commentary I read by a guy named Albert Barnes. Uh, this is what he said it means, and that's exactly what I think, but he worded it better. So I'm going to read to you his words. This refers to those dreadful moments on the cross when forsaken by people, he seemed also to be forsaken by God himself. God did not interpose to rescue him, but left him to bear those dreadful agonies alone. He bore the burden of the world's atonement by himself. He was overwhelmed with grief and crushed with pain for the sins of the world, as well as the agonies of the cross that had come upon him. See, there's something that went on during Jesus' crucifixion that we don't often think about, as if crucifixion is not bad enough. The Romans, some of the nicest people who ever lived, said, hmm, let's come up with a way of torturing somebody to death that hurts really bad, is humiliating, and lasts a really long time, even days. What can we do? And so they had centuries to devise the most humiliating, torturous thing they could come up with, and they came up with crucifixion. It's miserable. But on top of that, Jesus bore the sin of the world. We don't even know what that means. We've never experienced it. We can't even hope to understand what that means. But I can guess it didn't help. It had to make it infinitely worse. So not only was his body being assaulted, his soul was sharing in the filth of humanity. How could he not feel forsaken? How could he not cry out in despair? But remember, he was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. He did this to redeem you and I. Thank you, Jesus. So the 22nd Psalm starts off with that messianic prophecy, but then there's a lot more said about it. Verse 14, for example, says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. A medical doctor said, you know what? This very clearly portrays what somebody who's being crucified would feel like. By the way, I told you this was written a 1,000 years before Jesus. David is talking about what a doctor says crucifixion would feel like. They didn't have crucifixion like this in the days of King David. So it's not like he could have even made it up if he wanted to. This is solid biblical prophecy. This is divine evidence that God's involved in this. Then he goes on. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 16, it says, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. That is Hebrew parallelism. It's saying the same thing in two different ways. Dogs, therefore, is a metaphor. He's not saying there are literal dogs standing around him. Bad people are equated with dogs as a metaphor. Evil people have surrounded me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. It wasn't enough that he was being tortured. It wasn't enough that the sins of the world were being heaped on him. People were mocking him while he was there. You know, if you think people are good, I've got one word for you, Nazis. You say, oh, Steve, that's the exception. Okay, Attila the Hun. Oh, Steve, that's the exception. 
Okay, Stalin. Okay, Steve, that's the exception. How many names do I have got to throw out? How many millions have to die? And then what did we do? We crucify the Holy Son of God and we make fun of him while he's up there. Yeah, they're good people. But there's something wrong with humanity that we would do things like this to people, that we would come up with tortures like this. I'm working on season three of my program, Rock Shovels and Manuscripts. And one of the episodes is going to be on Nineveh. And so I had to research Nineveh again. Not pleasant. They were the Nazis of their day. They invented tortures too. Some of them make me want to vomit when I think about what they did to people. Literally, it's so disgusting, I can't think about it. And that's not when they skinned people alive. That one I could think about. That's how evil these people were. These were the Assyrians. They were bad, bad, bad people. But see, the more I learn about history, the more bad, bad people I learn about. And it just seems like no matter how far back you go, there's bad, 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 bad people. I mean, hey, Adam and Eve had a son, then they had another one, and one killed the other one. So from the very beginning, there have been bad guys. Well, it said that, quote, they pierced my hands and my feet. This does not apply to David. It only applies to Jesus. I told you they didn't have this kind of crucifixion back in those days. They didn't have anything that was called crucifixion in those days. But there's something going on here in the Hebrew language that I want to share with you. There's a typo in the Bible. Now, we've got lots of versions of the Bible, and even modern Bibles get typos in them. People mess up sometimes. But because we have so many Bibles, we don't miss what the original means because there's so many of them. Don't let it freak you out. Let me give you an example of a typo in the Bible. The first most famous, most famous, not first, the first most famous English Bible, the King James Version, still used to this day. One of the original ones in the seventh commandment said, thou shalt commit adultery. Oops, typo. Somebody left out the word not. But that didn't confuse anybody. Nobody went, hmm, I wonder which way I should go. Hmm. They knew it was a typo. No big deal. This is another one that's really no big deal, but people have made a big deal out of it. So I'm going to show you the typo, talk to you about the big deal, and tell you why it's really no big deal. Deal? All right. How's your Hebrew? That's the Hebrew word we're talking about. Okay? That word says ka'ari. Now, Let's talk about the typo. Besides my bad writing, the only difference between these two words is this here. And one happens to be longer than the other. I exaggerated this to give you the idea, but really it would probably cut off about there, and this one would probably cut off about there. So the difference is that length right there. Long stroke, short stroke. That's really the difference between those two words. Ka'ari, karu. Both are found in ancient manuscripts, so which is the right one? Well, let me explain to you why it's a problem. Within the Jewish community, 
they don't share our belief that Jesus is the Messiah. If Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet, and Jesus had his hands and feet pierced, it looks like a fulfillment of the prophecy. So they don't like that one. They like, the, they like this one. They don't like this one. This one, they say, means they pierced. This one, they say, means like a lion. Yeah, language can be that way. Same letters, totally different words. Let me explain to you how that works. All right, there's four letters here. One, two, three, four. Four radicals, okay? If you looked at these three alone, this is the Hebrew word, Ari, lion. Like Ariel, the lion of God. The word like or as in Hebrew doesn't stand alone. You attach it to a word, and it's this letter here. You put this in front of a Hebrew word, and it means like. Like or as. So they look at this and say, aha, like a lion. That's the perfect form for the Hebrew words, like a lion. And they are right. That is the perfect form for the Hebrew words, like a lion. But we have some problems. Then you would have to translate the verse like this. Instead of, they pierced my hands and my feet, it would have to be translated, like a lion, my hands and my feet. What's that mean? means nothing. So in order to accept this as the right one, you'd have to have a verse that means nothing. So you have to add some words to make it mean something, which they do. Like a lion, they crouch at my hands or my feet. They crouch is thrown in there. Like a lion, they attack my hands and my feet. The word they attack is thrown in there. Doesn't say any of that. All it says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. That's bad English and it's bad Hebrew. Doesn't work. But it's preferred by those who don't want to think that Jesus might be fulfilling prophecy. This is preferred by those who believe it is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is the perfect form for they pierced. And like I said, the difference is perhaps a typo. And I say perhaps, okay? This is they pierced. By the way, if you look at other versions of the Bible, like the one that was current, see the one I'm quoting from is the one that's current today. But the one that was current in Jesus' day didn't have this because it was written in Greek. And guess what it said? Written in Greek, they pierced my hands and my feet. And there's other ancient ones that say they pierced. But nevertheless, if you're going to be stubborn, you've got to be stubborn. Perfect form for like a lion, perfect form for they pierced. So they stick with this one, the others stick with this one. Even though this is the perfect form for like a lion... It's also the participle form of, wait for it, they pierced. So you could actually have this mean they pierced and this mean they pierced in two different forms. Don't even have to have a typo. So now you know everything all the scholars know and all the debaters about the Bible know about that one Hebrew word from Psalm chapter 22. Enjoy. <laughs> All right, so we've seen two fulfilled prophecies. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first fulfilled prophecy. Draws us to this 22nd Psalm in which we see another prophecy. They pierced my hands and my feet, the prophecy of the crucifixion. But there's more prophecies in just this one Psalm. Let me show you a third one. In Psalm 22:18, it says this. They divide my garments among them 
and cast lots for my clothing. So this didn't happen to David. A thousand years before, David writes, they divide my clothes and throw dice for them. Cast lots for my clothing. First of all, let me help you under, understand this. In our culture, this doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody gamble over our clothes? If I'm being crucified, you wouldn't want to rip off my shirt, maybe even bloodied shirt, and gamble over it. Or let's say it's not bloody. Let's say you took it off me before you crucified it. Who'd gamble over this shirt? You can go to Goodwill, get a whole set of clothes for five bucks. In our culture, in our country, clothes are cheap. This is unprecedented in most of human history. Clothes, in most of history, are extremely valuable. The average person had one set, because that's all they could afford. A set of clothes would be like, value-wise, a pretty decent car back in those days. So they didn't have a middle class. You were rich or poor. So if you're rich, you had several sets of clothes. And if you were poor, you were lucky to have one. And you took good care of it. So now there's a guy hanging up on the cross. His clothes are there. They're, maybe he's got two or three pieces. They're worth a good car. Now you can understand why they would have gambled over him. But that didn't happen to David. It did happen to Jesus. A thousand years after David wrote this, Mark, who's recording what happened to Jesus, wrote this down. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. So, so far we've looked at three prophecies fulfilled during Jesus' crucifixion. The first one, his cry out to God using the exact words of Psalm 22. The second one is the crucifixion itself where it specifically says they pierced his hands and feet. And the third one are his clothes being gambled over. I told you the odds for eight of them are 100 quadrillion to one. I have no idea what the odds are for 24 to 26 of them, which I found. And as I told you, in his whole lifetime, close to 300. I also told you I'd give you the source of the statistics. Um, I've got a video that just kind of wraps all this up to you in a nice package. Let's take a look. In order for Jesus to be God, he would have to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. These prophecies were given hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that they were not written after the fact because discoveries such as the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Old Testament and its prophecies regarding the Messiah were written before the time of Christ. In 1969, Peter Stoner, professor of science at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, published a book titled Science Speaks. Stoner carefully and conservatively estimated the probability of Jesus accidentally fulfilling Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He submitted his findings to colleagues and skeptics alike. Professor Stoner's work was also reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation, which verified his statistics. Stoner noted eight messianic prophecies. These eight prophecies concerned Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, the announcement of his arrival, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, his betrayal by a friend, the price of his betrayal as 30 pieces of silver, the throwing of the money in the house of the Lord, his silence before his accusers, and his crucifixion by having his hands and feet pierced. 
According to the laws of probability, the chances of Jesus accidentally fulfilling these eight prophecies is one out of 10 to the 17th power. That is a one with 17 zeros after it. In order to put this number into perspective, imagine playing cards eight hours a day, seven days a week for the next year. And each and every time you played, you were dealt a winning hand. Time after time after time. The odds of you doing this are still less than one out of 10 to the 17th power. Stoner then lists 48 key prophecies regarding the Messiah. The chances of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies by accident is one out of 10 to the 157th power. That is a one with 157 zeros after it. That number is so large that it is inconceivable for Jesus Christ to have accidentally fulfilled 48 prophecies. However, Jesus did not fulfill just 48 prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. In fact, he fulfilled everything the Old Testament foretells about the Messiah's first coming in every detail. Therefore, the laws of probability provide evidence that Jesus Christ is God. But more than that, what I like about that, um, all this stuff I shared with you and all these statistics, I mean, I like that God is so awesome that thousands of years ago he can lay out all these things and make sure they happen. That's just amazing to me. Um, God is awesome. And what I like about it is it shows us that our Bible and our faith are unique. All the other religions on the planet, you have to believe what they say just because they tell you to believe it. It's faith without evidence, whereas our faith is rooted in incontrovertible evidence. In fact, you need a lot of other kind of faith not to believe after seeing this sort of thing. I like that too. But what I really like is if all those prophecies were fulfilled, that means the prophecies that have not yet happened will also be fulfilled. Let me give you some examples of those prophecies, the ones that put a smile on my face. Jesus is coming back. The Bible says he'll come the first time. Absolutely. And it says he's coming back. So if he came the first time, he's coming the second time. The way he came, according to the scriptures, the first time, he would come meekly like a lion born of a virgin. The second time, like a triumphant king from heaven in the clouds. That's how he's coming back. The Bible says that when we die, we will be resurrected into glorious, corrupt-free, powerful bodies. That's a prophecy. If the others happen, this one's going to happen. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. They will neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy hill. That will happen. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That will happen. They will have no more war. That will happen. God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The former things have passed away. All things are new. That will also happen. The rest is just like leading up to the best. And you can bet it's going to happen. In fact, you have to bet. You know this video clip they showed? Not a fan. You have to decide if you want to be a fan or a follower. I like playing poker. It's a fun game. It's, it's not just, you know, guess you have good cards, but you try to trick people. 
You try to make them think you got a better hand than you do. And you try, almost like chess, and you do that a few times, and then you let them see that they were wrong, so you can suck them in the next time and get them right. A lot of strategy to the game. But there's a put your money where your mouth is aspect of the game. It's called going all in. You know, somebody play a guard and say, you know what? I'll bet you five Hershey kisses, you don't have it. You say, oh, I, I do have the cards. You really want to call me on that? Oh, yeah. All right, I bet you all my Hershey kisses. Whoa, all your kisses? Let's turn that around. I'll bet you 20 bucks you don't have that hand. Yeah, but would you bet me 1,000 bucks? How confident are you now, Bubba? I'm all in. Well, with God, you got to be all in. You're either in or you're out. You either believe or you don't. You're either willing to follow him or you're not. And the reward for the all-in at poker might be a bag of Hershey Kisses. But the all-in with Jesus, it's eternal life. Happiness forever. But if you're not all in with Jesus, the opposite. So the stakes are high, very, very high. I've given you all the evidence I can. But if there's anything else I can give you to help convince you to change your life and follow Jesus, please get in touch with me because I'll do the best I can to get you on that train. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I'm thinking about the prayer that one man said. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so I pray for all of us here today, those who are in strong belief and those in unbelief, that you'd help us to believe in Jesus. But to be fully committed, not fans, but followers, all in, confident that he who fulfilled these prophecies can keep our souls and raise up, us up for the next life. Jesus, show us what we can do to help others. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into the hearts of those that don't believe to open their eyes that they might have eternal life and enjoy the pleasures of sinlessness in heaven and avoid the pangs of hell. Jesus, it's in your name, Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.